You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. into this building this morning. My name is Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here. Really glad that you're here. Um, Whether you're new, this is your first week, or you've been running at this thing for quite some time with us uh, as Crosspoint Peachtree City. Um, We are uh, a couple years old church plant uh, here in Southwest Atlanta and are really excited about what God's doing. Um, I may take some time uh, in just a a little bit to unpack what God's doing even beyond Peachtree City. I got the chance to go to a, a conference slash retreat down in South Florida, Boca Raton area. Um, We have a church down there, Spanish River Church, that uh, funds us along with upwards of 500 other uh, church planters across the globe. And so got a chance to sit with um, guys from Florida, Georgia, Virginia Beach, New York City, West Coast, Midwest, uh, Albania, India, Russia, and God is doing crazy things all over the world. And if there's time for me to unpack some of that as it lends itself based on this text, we'll definitely do that. But for the sake of time, let's go ahead and uh, dive into this morning's passage. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one nearby under one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and flip up into this morning's passage. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you for free. Church's gift to you. We're not gonna hawk you down to get it back. It's yours. We love the Bible. We want everyone to own one. So uh, with that being said, I'm not gonna read the passage up front. We're just gonna kind of work through it as we go. So let me pray and we'll jump in and we'll get to work. Jesus, I love you. I love your word. Thank you for giving us the scriptures. Uh, Thank you for... Uh, not putting us in a position to have to try to figure out uh, the deep need for a savior as we see our own sin and unbelief based on mountains and beaches and other elements of creation. Yes, we, uh, we do see uh, much of your character in the creation that, uh, that we find ourselves surrounded by every day, but clearly you would not have given us the scriptures if we did not need them uh, in terms of understanding our deep need for a savior and who that savior is. So thank you for the Bible. Thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, and the honor to work through the Bible with everyone who is filling this room this morning. Um, Holy Spirit, we need you. Uh, I can't uh, raise dead souls to life. I can't in my own strength, spark something in in the souls of your people uh, in the midst of of their apathy. I can't do these things, God. Even in my own heart, Holy Spirit, I need you uh, to awaken my own heart this morning. So would you awaken our hearts? Would you help us to see the things that we deeply need to see that we're blinded to, to hear the things that that, uh, our ears are not perceptive enough to hear at this point? Would you uh, help us to see the beauty of Christ this morning. Uh, we lift these things up in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to kind of break this thing down into a couple of sections this morning. Uh, in the first 12 verses, we, we get uh, this glimpse of 
Paul's rights. And so going back to last week, if you were here, we talked about uh, in chapter 8, uh, Paul's addressing this issue of food being sacrificed to idols. And uh, Christians in the city of Corinth are going, what do we do with that? Are we allowed to, to eat meat that's been sacrificed in a pagan temple? Uh, there are leftovers in the marketplace now. What do we do with that? Are we allowed to attend these feasts in the temple, essentially to take communion uh, amongst uh, pagans as they worship their gods? What do we do with all this? And Paul talks about this idea of laying down our rights when necessary for the sake of the gospel especially as it pertains to being cautious not to lead Christians astray, brothers and sisters in Christ astray in areas where their consciences are weak based on their stories prior to coming to Jesus. And so Paul now, in the first 12 verses of chapter 9, uses himself as a case study. And so as we look at verse 1, Paul says, am I not free? And the answer would be yes, Right? Paul is just as free as everyone in Corinth. He has just as many rights as the saints in Corinth do. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And the answer would be yes. According to Acts chapter 9, we get the story of Paul's conversion. Um, he didn't see Jesus in those 40 days after Jesus' death and resurrection like the other apostles, but Jesus did appear to Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, literally knocking him off of his horse with the, the blinding light of his radiance. And, and so Paul says, I've seen Jesus, and thus uh, I'm a witness to the resurrected Christ. I, I have apostolic authority. And so I have additional rights beyond you as the saints of Corinth, he says. He asks the question, are, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And the answer is yes. He says, yes, you are. Apart from Paul's ministry, there would be no church in Corinth at all. And that's not to take away from God's sovereignty and salvation. If you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, we have uh, these words. Paul says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So Paul says, yes, God is sovereign in salvation, and yet God uses people to declare the gospel and to build his church. And that's where we're going this morning. In verse two, he says, if to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The seals in the Near, uh, Near East were used to guarantee the authenticity of a document. Perhaps you've seen a, a wax seal like, like this one up on the screen in movies that are, are set in certain uh, times in human history. A couple of my favorite movies um, Count of Monte Cristo includes a scene where you have this wax seal uh, stamped onto a letter, Sleepy Hollow. Movies that are set um, in a certain time period have this kind of seal, and it's meant to say this is an authentic document. Um, and, and what Paul is saying here is, is that you, Christians in Corinth, are the authentication of my being an apostle. He says, this is my defense for those who would examine me in verse three. I've seen Jesus, and you're all saved. And that affirms that God has actually called me to this work uh, of, of apostolic uh, carrying forth of the gospel. And he says, as an apostle, I have a right to a lot of things. Going on into verse four, he says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? In other words, don't, 
Don't ministers of the gospel have the right to have their basic needs met by the church, food and water and shelter and clothing? And the answer again is yes, absolutely. Verse five, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, which is Peter? In other words, don't ministers of the gospel have the right to bring their loved ones along on their missionary journeys and to have their loved ones cared for by the church just as much as they're cared for? And the answer again is yes. And some of the other apostles did have wives. Um, Peter had a wife. Um, I was a Christian for a long time before I realized that Peter was a married dude. Um, Several of the apostles had wives and they were cared for by the church as they spread the gospel. In verse six, Paul asks the question, he says, or is it only Barnabas and I uh, who have no right to refrain from working for a living? In other words, are we some weird exception to the rule? And the answer for the first time this morning is no, that we have every right to be supported by the church for laboring for the sake of the gospel, just like all of the other ministers of the gospel who have come alongside of us to see the gospel spread in the early church. And then Paul goes common sense on them. In verse seven, he says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? The Paul says, I have a right to be cared for by the church, one, because I'm an apostle, and two, because it's just good common sense. That it's common sense that those who work hard should benefit from their labor. That a soldier doesn't work for free. He works for a wage. A vineyard worker gets to eat some of the grapes of his own vineyard. A shepherd gets to enjoy some of the milk of his own flock. Paul says, in, in laboring, in preaching the gospel, I have a right to benefit from my labor. And then he goes Bible on them. In verse 8, he says, do I, not, uh, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? He's going back to the Old Testament. He says, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. That if you go back to the time when uh, this verse was written in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4, which is is what Paul's alluding to in the scriptures, the ox would trample the corn and he would shake it loose from the husks. And then the mixture of grain and, and chaff would fly into the air. The chaff would blow away and the grain, which was heavier, would fall to the ground and then it would be collected. And according to Deuteronomy 25 verse four, which Paul quotes, the ox was not to be muzzled um, as he took on this work of labor. He was to be allowed to eat some of the grain as a wage for his work. And Paul goes on to say at the end of verse nine, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he he not certainly speak for our sake as human beings? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope, Paul says, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. That God most certainly cares about animals. Um, God deeply cares about animals. We know this because uh, Matthew chapter five tells us uh, to look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. He provides for animals. And in Matthew five, Jesus goes on to say, are you not of more value than they? In other words, you're not on the same level with God. We've talked about this before. And that, that means you're a person Uh, meant to exhibit great humility, but you're also not on the same level with animals. You're an image bearer of God, and that means that he's created you with great dignity. He cares deeply about you. That's what Paul's saying. He's saying, he who labors hard should labor in hope that he'll actually get paid for his hard work, that he'll be cared for as as an image bearer of God. 
And he says in verse 11, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things among you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? That Paul's saying, we pulled the plow in Corinth and you're the harvest, the church in Corinth. It's within our rights, Paul says, to receive financial support from you. So summary of the verse, uh, first 12 verses, Paul's making this case and he's using himself uh, as the case study He spends 12 verses saying, as a laborer in the gospel, I have every right to make my living by the gospel. My apostolic authority tells me so. The Bible tells me so. And even common sense tells me so. He spends the first 12 verses making this case. And now he's going to spend the remainder of this chapter arguing that sometimes a person's rights are not the most important thing, which is hard for us to wrap our our mind around in in America, uh, the land of the free and the home of the brave. We have freedoms, we have rights, and and we should hold on to those always. But Paul's going to talk about surrender as we work our way through the rest of this chapter, the idea of actually surrendering those rights when the gospel is at stake. He says this at the end of verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. That Paul believes that, that the gospel going forth is worth surrendering everything for. That word obstacle is really fascinating. In the Greek, it means a cutting into. Um, In terms of a word picture for us, it, it would be the idea of creating a pothole in the road. So if you go back to the ancient world, when there was a war, um, they would dig holes in the road to prevent the enemy from advancing. So you just dig a bunch of holes and now the enemy can't, can't move forward to actually attack you. And what Paul is saying here is I don't wanna do anything that might prevent the advancement of the gospel. I don't want my life to be a pothole that gets in the way of people meeting Jesus. He says in verse 13, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's coming back. He's he's giving another argument for why he has every right to receive care from the church. He says Jewish priests were supported by the people. If you go back to the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter seven, uh, we know that the priests didn't have to make tents like the apostle Paul did in order to scrap out a living, that the priest was able to take home the remaining part of the sacrifice after the sacrifice was given in the temple. And he even takes them to Jesus in verse 14 to make his argument. He says, in the same way the Lord Jesus commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's referring to Matthew chapter 10 and Luke chapter 10 where Jesus commissions the 12 and on another occasion he commissions 72 disciples to go out. And he tells them not to take anything with them because the laborer deserves his wage, his food. You'll be cared for by the people as a minister of the gospel, Jesus himself says. So, so Paul goes, common sense on them. He, he takes his apostolic thar- authority into the argument. He takes them to the Bible, including the Old Testament sacrificial system and the New Testament Lord and Master Jesus himself, his very words. But he says in verse 15, but, but I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. What Paul says here is I know my rights, but I've, I've chosen to surrender them. And even now, this is not a support letter. I'm not writing these things to try to, to gather support from you. I'm not writing these things so that you'll pull out a checkbook 
He says, I'm preaching on my own dime here and I'd rather, I'd rather die than give up the gospel ground that I'm gaining by preaching on my own dime. In other words, going back to verse 12, for Paul to have received monetary support from the Corinthian church would have put a pothole in the road preventing the advancement of the gospel. That in Paul's situation, to declare the gospel free of charge removes the pothole so more people will meet Jesus. And so I think the big question is this, what, what's the pothole? I mean, what's the, what's the issue that Paul's dealing with in his context that would cause him to say, I'm gonna lay down my rights here? I think there are a couple of things that, that would be helpful for us in answering that question. Number one, uh, we talked about this before, back when we were working through the first couple chapters of 1 Corinthians. Corinth was the land of oratory. It was the, the land of rhetoric. It was the land of smooth talkers. Orators in the urban city center would use their rhetorical skill, skills to obtain a lot of money. Um, their salaries were big. And Paul's looking to distinguish himself from these profiteers. Um, modern day examples for us um, would be planting or pastoring a church in a prosperity gospel saturated area. So if a, a church planter or a pastor were to go into an area uh, where uh, this health and wealth gospel of come, come to Jesus and, and he'll afford you everything you want. In other words, he'll write the check for all your idols. He'll be the stepping stone to something greater than him in your heart. If that's what's being declared in a culture, it might be a good idea to go make tents for a living if you're gonna take the gospel to a place like that. Another example would be planting a church or pastoring a church in an area where a number of pastors have been financially unethical in recent history. So if, if pastors are uh, using the church budget to afford themselves things that they should not be doing, you know, if, if there's word on the street that um, church leadership is unethical when it comes to how they handle finances in the local church, and, and that's kind of brewing and stewing in the community, there's buzz about that, it might be good to make tents rather than to be supported by the church in that kind of situation. That Paul says in the first 14 verses, a pastor who labors in the work of the gospel has a biblical right to be supported by the church. Thank you, Paul. I can pay my bills. I'm glad that he said this. Um, but, but he says it's a right that must be surrendered if it's a hindrance to the advancement of the gospel. Going back to chapter 8, are you connecting the dots now? That Paul's saying, hey, if it gets in the way, it's a right that I've got to lay down. It's much bigger than, than uh uh, pastors being supported by the church. It goes to every area of our lives and how we leverage our rights for the sake of the advancement of the gospel and the glory of God. That for the other apostles, there was no need to surrender the very right that Paul is talking about surrendering. But for Paul in his context, there was a need to do that. Uh, another angle on this would be in a world in which lofty speech could be bought on the streets, in the marketplace of ideas, Paul's communicating something about the gospel. He's saying it's not for sale. You can't buy the gospel. If you could buy the gospel, um, it, it would only be good news to those who could write a check big enough, which means that it's good news for no one because you can't write a check big enough to ransom your very soul. The good news is that someone else paid the ransom, that Jesus signed the check in his blood. 1 Peter 1, 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold or uh, blank checks, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
that Paul's saying, if it sets me apart from the money-hungry, profiteering public speakers in Corinth, I'll make tents for a living. And if it means making it crystal clear that the gospel's not for sale, grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone is, is my declaration, Paul says, then I'll make tents for a living. I have no problem doing that. In verse 16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel, for I do this of my own will. If I do so, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. That Paul says, preaching the gospel is not my boast. That's happening no matter what. I couldn't get away from preaching the gospel if I tried. I'm constrained to preach the gospel. I'm compelled to preach the gospel. There's a fire in my bones to preach the gospel. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I do it willingly, it's a reward to me. But if not, I'm still not excused from the work that God's called me to. I've been entrusted with a responsibility that I have to be faithful to, whether I benefit from it or not materialistically. And I think we could stop there and, and, and have a diagnostic moment at a heart level, each of us, and ask the question, do we feel that way about the gospel? I mean, can we declare with Paul, woe is me if I don't declare the gospel to other people? And if not, if there's not that kind of, and I understand that, that we're fickle people, and so you might say, well, not today, Jamie, but I mean, like a couple Thursdays ago, I felt that way. I get that. We're human beings. We're a work in progress. Um, the doctrine's called progressive sanctification. It happens over the course of your entire life, and so I totally get that, um, but let me ask this. In, in recent history, like when was the last time you felt that kind of fire in your bones to, to declare the gospel to an unbelieving world that you find yourself in, in the midst of every day. And if it's been a while, what, what, is, what would that say about your own belief in the gospel and love for the gospel and the work of the gospel in your life presently? Paul says in verse 18, what then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel, that Paul says, I have to preach. That's not up for debate, but I don't have to exercise my rights. My boast is not in preaching the gospel. My boast is in preaching the gospel free of charge, that Paul's highest pay is to preach the gospel without pay, that as long as the gospel's spreading, Paul says, I don't care what it costs me. It doesn't matter. That counting of the cost shines right into the darkness of the city of Corinth like a bright light. The, the Christians in Corinth, you can think of it this way, thought in terms of I rather than we. My rights, my freedom, my liberty. Going back to last week, you know, I have this knowledge. I have the right to these things, Paul. And Paul says knowledge without love is useless. That, that setting aside I for we is the path of the gospel. Makes me think about the seagulls in Finding Nemo. Seen that movie? I can't, I can't even go to the beach anymore where there's seagulls without, without thinking about that movie because every seagull sounds like they're saying, mine, 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 you know? And they're all selfish, right? They all want your lunch every time you go to the beach. They're, they're the most selfish animals on planet Earth. So it's a perfect analogy. And Paul's saying, church in Corinth, you sound like the seagulls in Finding Nemo. You sound very consumeristic. You sound like you care about what's in it for you. 
Paul says, lay down your me, my, mine type of thinking for the sake of we, for the church, and for those who aren't yet the church. Let me pose this question for all of us in the room. What might it look like for you to lay down I for the sake of we, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the church, the edification of the body, serving the church, for the, for the sake of uh, the mission of the church going forth? What might that look like? Or, or one way we could ask the question would be this. What will it cost you to be a part of the spreading of the gospel? And there are a number of ways we could answer that question. It'll likely cost you time. If you hang out with people who don't know and love Jesus, it might take 30-something cups of coffee before the gospel ever becomes good news to them. It might cost you comfort. The more you engage in the messiness of uh, the stories of people who don't know and love Jesus, uh, the more likely they are to call you when their life goes into crisis mode, and it's never gonna be when you have a few free spare hours. It just never works that way. It might cost you money because every one of those cups of coffee costs a couple bucks. And so we might have to come out of pocket for the sake of the gospel at times. It might cost you emotional tranquility, right? Have you ever sat with someone whose life is a complete train wreck, who deeply needs Jesus but doesn't see that they deeply need Jesus? There's an emotional cost to that, right? You go into those conversations with the tank on full and you come out with less than half a tank left. You're exhausted emotionally. And yet God calls us to that for the sake of pointing people to Jesus. It might cost you your reputation because as you seek to spread the gospel, here's what will happen. Religious people will throw rocks at you for saying Christ alone and not Christ plus all these other things. And, and irreligious people will call you a fool for believing in, in the inerrancy of Scripture, in sola scriptura, the, the authority of Scripture as supreme in all of life, rather than you, the human being, be, being supreme in determining matters of truth. This idea that you believe in a, a resurrected God who took on human flesh in the first place to die and even be resurrected, you'll be called a fool by the irreligious and rocks will be thrown at you by the religious. Read the Gospels, and you'll see Jesus walking this path, and just look at where it goes. It cost him his very life. Spreading the Gospel will cost us. And Paul cares deeply about the spreading of the Gospel. Look at how much he cares about it in verse 19, and looking at the next few verses. He says, for though I am free from all, I'm a free man, I have rights, I have liberties, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant, a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, parentheses, though not myself, uh, being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. That Paul says, when I'm hanging out with Jews, with religious people, I don't do anything to purposefully offend them. It comes back to the image of creating potholes with my life that are gonna get in the way of the advancement of the gospel. And so what Paul's saying here is I don't make secondary matters primary. When I go into a conversation with the Jews, Paul says, I'm not looking to convert them from, uh, from dietary laws to uh, no longer believing that those laws are in play because Jesus has come. Like that, that's not what I'm trying to win them over to. That's a secondary issue. What secondary matters do you make 
primary, causing people to bypass the real offense of the gospel. What does that look like? We all do this, right? We all take molehills and turn them into mountains that are bigger than Stone Mountain in our minds and in our, our hearts at the abandonment of the gospel so that by the time we ever get to the gospel, people have tripped over you know, 18 speed bumps and are going, I can't do this. I'm just exhausted from fighting with you over those 18 secondary things that, that I can't even engage the offense of the gospel with you at this point. What, is, what does that look like? Paul says, I take everything offensive off the table so that they don't miss the real offense of the gospel itself. And by the way, the gospel is offensive. That God would be murdered for the sins of man means we have to assume that we're sinners and that Jesus needed to bleed out and die to give us any hope. That's super offensive. Paul says, I became as one under the law. In other words, I'm willing to adopt the Jewish way of life temporarily in ways that I need to, going to the synagogues, participating in prayers and liturgy, if it affords me an opportunity to share the gospel. This actually explains the lashings that Paul received at the hands of the Jews. Second Corinthians 11, he talks about the 40 minus one lashes that he received, that synagogue leaders couldn't beat someone who wasn't under their discipline. And what that tells you is that Paul actually submitted himself in some way to, to the leadership of the Jews at the time in order that he could share the gospel in those very synagogues to win them over to Christ. Now, does that mean that Paul believed in justification by obedience to all the Jewish laws? Not remotely. That's why the parentheses is there. Paul says, though not being myself under the law. In other words, the law doesn't justify me. Jesus does. Christ alone. And so knowing that, I can adapt where I need to, to win Jews over to Christ. And he goes on to say, on the other side of the spectrum, verse 21 to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And you get another parenthesis there. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those outside the law. In other words, when I'm hanging out with Gentiles, I don't do anything to purposely offend them either. Since I became as one outside the law, that Paul didn't bring Jewish ceremonial law to his Gentile hangouts. Does this mean that Paul adopted all things pagan? that all of a sudden Paul's a syncretist, he's just compromising on all things when he hangs out with the Gentiles? By no means, that's the point of the parentheses. He says, I'm not outside the law, but I'm under the law of Christ. In other words, Christ is always Lord. He's master, he's king of my life. I'll never bend my knee to another. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.